All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Because there's nothing like a weekend pause with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm Questlove, your host. It's actually, have, have we ever uh, tag team Tickalo? I don't think we have. <laughs> I think Nicholas is the first this time. Is the, <laughs> it's the tag team interest of uh, Fon Tickalo and, and Questlove. How, how you doing, man? What's, I'm what's good. Up? How's, how's your week been? It's uh, hectic, um, but uh, I did. Um, I saw I a few posts. Are you allowed to talk about it? Uh uh yeah 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 i mean yeah we we had our first like little brother show in like two years over the like last weekend how was that and uh, it was insane very surreal afterwards i had these two kids come up to me and were like this is the greatest show we've ever seen two white girls 17 and her sister who was 12. wow that was the first the 12 year old she said it was the first show she'd ever been to ever and I was sitting there talking with my homegirl, Charlotte, and we was just sitting there. And I was like, hi, man. They was like, oh, my God, you guys were getting it so hype. It was so great. And I love the pink. I love you in the pink shirt. We love the pink. I was like, <laughs> okay, uh, thanks for the fashion tip. You know what I mean? <laughs> but How, uh, how did I, they know to even see you? Well, they were Both of them are younger than your career. Straight up. I got albums older than both of them. So they were, we were opening for a band uh, called Sylvan Esso. And um, they, big ups to them. them that's that's fine. Oh, Sylvan Esso. Yes. So they did like a three night kind of festival thing in Durham. And uh, we were like the support act for night two. And uh, yeah, man, we came out there and, you know, it was our first show. Me and Pooh put the set together like the night before. I was like, okay, we'll do this, do that, do that. And we went out there and at the end of the show, towards the end, normally we would ask at the beginning, but for this night, we asked at the end, we was like, how many of y'all is your first time seeing Little Brother for the first time? And like 90% of the hands went up. They They had no idea who we were. But like we rocked that shit, and so um, it was it was crazy. It was surreal. Like to be, you're now a 20 year veteran. Straight up, no, bro, facts. Like 20 years in to still be picking up new fans. That shit is that's kind of surreal. And I'm noticing too that post COVID crowds. I don't know. And Rick, we can ask you about this as well if you want to wait. It seems to me like post COVID concert crowds and pre COVID concert crowds are two different things. Yes, 
Because like everybody's high, everybody's yeah. high. Hundred percent. Yeah, I'm just. I, I mean, I remember the first gig we did. Um, hi, by the way. I remember the first gig we did. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna COVID. introduce you for good. <laughs> <laughs> this, after, this is like this COVID. is the cold open. <laughs> okay, that's good. Um, uh, yeah, first gig we did in the UK, and that first gig was kind of crazy because we did it at a place called Nebworth, which is a legendary country house, if you like, just outside of London. Oh, and there's yeah, been some point. amazing gigs done there. But we we played to about two and a half thousand people instead of 250,000 people because mm. they all brought their car and they had a picnic space. And so they all sat in their cars or on the bonnet of their car, the roof of the car, what have you. And they were all given a picnic space. So it went on for about a mile, this this thing. But it was amazing because when it, the sun went down, everyone was using their car lights to sort of say, to so for applause. applause. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was amazing. So it was a really strange gig, but... I could see, especially in the crew and the people who've been building the stage and the, you know what I mean, and everything, uh-huh. you could see people were really, really emotional. I mean, it, being on stage is an emotional thing, full stop. But mm-hmm. being on stage in front of a crowd after that, all that time, that was, it was amazing, absolutely incredible. And we, we did a few that summer that were just, just amazing. You know, it just made you feel lucky, made you feel, I don't know, like a newfound respect for, for being allowed to do what you do, you know? Ah, 100%. It was very much like watching the crowd. It was not versus in the past where you would see people kind of in their bodies, for lack of a better word, where it's like, throw your hands up, scream, shout, whatever. It's like all of that. You can just see them just kind of in their heads. Like they're just watching it and like, you know, like just kind of taking it in and they're enjoying, they're having a ball, but they're just in their heads, just kind of watching it. And um, yeah, that was definitely something I noticed I'm like, okay, yeah, these post-COVID shows and the pre-COVID, this it's a it's a whole Night new, day. Whole yeah, new. different thing. Well, that said, ladies and gentlemen, um, I will say that our guest is probably beyond just fame. Okay, so he's a musician, singer, songwriter, uh, from the UK. I like to say the UK like I'm from the UK. I only lived there for four years, but I make people from the UK actually think that, you know, that I'm I'm an actual like lifelong resident there. You know, and he 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 came into our radar, at least my radar, for a lot of us here in the states. Uh, you know, of course, in the late '80s, and made it absolutely impossible to forget his music. And I'll say that's an actual achievement. And even to this day, those singles, uh, very strong, very potent singles, are dropped, and it's instant happiness and joy. You know, and even going as so much to say, albeit kind of a an unusual achievement, but I will well, I'll ask you, Fonte, if Michael Jackson owns Halloween and Mariah Carey owns <laughs> Christmas, <laughs> I almost think that our guest today might own April Fool's Day, um, which, yeah. is, which is kind of a weird, a weird quote to say. And, you know, I'm not even implying that our guest is a joke or his music is a joke. Far from it. But, you know, for clarification purposes, I'll say that. You know, we all live in the, the you know, this like the 20th, 25th year of really the Internet uh, sort of in our lives. And uh, I think he might have been the first meme, yo. He yes, may, exactly. He may have been the first what we now know as Internet being culture. Like, yes, that's the first one. I, I think he, I think he really was originated. Well, definitely one of the earliest examples of, of the sticky factor, as we you know, as something viral. You know, which in in the eyes of Gen Z, like that's that's a serious achievement. Um, our guest that means more than a Grammy. <laughs> yes, it's it's the same. You know, you're you're you you will be here forever, long after we're 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 going from Earth. 
you know, in, in, in the fact that even his name can imply, you know, not only being a, a, a proper noun, but, you know, to be Rick rolled is to is the new okie dokie falling for the okie dokie. <laughs> having successfully pulled a prank. Um, I'll, I'll say that in my research, I didn't realize that YouTube themselves, uh, when they, you know, established in 2007, 2008, YouTube themselves actually invented what we call Rick rolling for the the two, three of you that don't know what Rick rolling means. It's it's the thing where someone shares a uh, serious video with you and then about 12 seconds in you're hit with, again, the irresistible course of <laughs> never going to give you up. And, you know, I will say that probably during the pandemic, I, I've a uh, I'm giving a shout out to uh, my pal, Jim Grable from Philadelphia, who is one of the biggest Rick Astley fans ever. I've fallen down a vicious rabbit hole and looking at it all anything that you do in concert um she'll instantly send me so you know to see these springsteen covers a born to run and your nirvana covers and and you know the everything from your foo fighters to acdc covers you on drums all these things you you covering uh like the the smith songs like i'm, I'm really genuinely this you know i had to have you on the show because i've i've like discovered a rekindled fandom for our guest today that goes way beyond just like, you know, the Rick rolling part of his, his career, but you know, there's a long time coming. So welcome to quest love Supreme. This is Rick Astley. Thank you for joining us, man. Thank Sir. you. It's, an, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for that. Um, extraordinary introduction as well. I'll, I'll, I'll take that on board, um, in a very heartfelt way. So, uh, no, it's nice to be here. Well, we mean it. Where, where are you right now? Uh, right now, we're between Vegas and Fresno. Um, I'm on tour right now. I got invited last year to come to America and do a tour with, are you ready for this? New Kids on the Block, on Vogue, as I call them, on Vogue. On Vogue. I've been told, I've been told you've got to say en Vogue. I'm like, no, I'm European, it's on Vogue. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and salt and pepper. And we're having a lot of fun, I can tell you. And we had a day off yesterday, which is, which is always nice. Obviously, we're in Vegas, we had a bit of fun. But um, the gigs have just been amazing. And um, it's very unusual for me because I haven't done anything like this, certainly in America anyway, um, right. where you get a group of artists together and go out and do that. I have done it in Europe and different places, but I've mm. never really been to America and do it. And, and obviously, it's, we're just having a ball right now. So, so I'm on my bus right now heading to uh, Fresno. So that, that also explains um, the video that came out with the, the, the yeah. four of you. Uh, bring sure. back the time. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. believe. Yeah, yeah. So it's so weird because normally, you know, I'll see package tours and acts get together and, you know, they might interact with each other, whatever. But the fact that you guys got together to <laughs> sort of collaborate and no yeah. one saw this coming. Like, could you explain the, the genesis of how that came to be? Who put it together? So, yeah. So we got a phone call. And do you want to come and do the mixtape tour? And for me, I was kind of like, I, well, it's kind of, America is a very different ball game for me. It's I grew up listening and watching America and doing mm -hmm. gigs here. Doing gigs here was always kind of like one of the pinnacle things. You know, having some records on the radio here was always an amazing thing because I know then whether they liked them or not, whether they liked my voice or not. I know Luther Vandross heard my, me sing. I know Al Green did, Bill Withers did, and those guys unknowingly taught me to sing. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So I kind of thought, I, I always think coming to America is an amazing thing. Um, but the mixtape tour is something completely different because 
the New Kids fans are absolutely crazy, and I'm truly sure they know by now, because we've done a few gigs, but I mean mm. that with a lot of love, but they're absolutely crazy. So when yes. I kind of Googled, Googled the previous mixtape tours and the fans and the everything, I spoke to Donny, Donny Wahlberg, quite a bit about it. And I just thought, you know what, let's just do it. We're going to have a lot of fun. Um, it's not normal in the sense that because it's a mixtape, I go on, sing some songs, and then I hang around backstage and I watch the guys and I'm at the side of the stage watching the different artists. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of get ready to go back on stage again and do it again. And I've never done that. It's kind of a, it's much more of a show in that respect. Interactive. But, a review. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Johnny walked me through that and he talked me through that and explained how they do it. And so I think once you get over that and kind of realize what it is, as opposed to going up and opening for an artist and doing your yeah. 45 minutes, doing your hour, mm-hmm. and then going off and done, it's a totally different thing. And also one of the things that I have huge respect for them for doing this, they open the gig, they go on first and wow. then they introduce, and then they introduce an artist. Tell me a headline act in the world who does that. Amir. I'm about to say, I pioneered this. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, but I, I, no, no ideas original, but you know, I, I always hated the ideal of like, Someone goes on first, someone goes on second, which is, you yeah. know, which is why I'm also kind of, I know it's comedy, but the whole DL Monique thing, yeah. because I, I just think that, you know, it's more unique to do Motown reviews used to be that way. Like right. three songs from Stevie, three songs from the Supremes, three songs. Yeah. From da, 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 and then people come back yeah. and interact. So I've been I've been doing that for like 20 years. And I'm fine. When you said that, I was like, ah, finally, someone else is doing it. That's yeah. dope. Even up until 2017, 18, and 19, there will be occasional towns in which the Roots and New Kids on the Block will be in the same hotel. And absolutely nothing has changed. Like now, you know, Donnie told me, like, you know, back in the day, it was it was the mothers trying to hook up the daughters. But now it's like you have daughters taking their mothers to New kids on the block shows and yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, they're yeah. hanging around the hotel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but there's a lot. I'm telling you, there's a, what, what has kind of shocked me a little bit. Of course, most of the audience is of an age because they were there for the first records. They bought the first records. They went on all the tours. Right. But I'm telling you, it's kind of odd. There's a lot of younger people in that audience and they know all their tunes and they yeah. are like fully paid up members of being the blockhead family and everything. <laughs> and it's really nice to see, but I think, you know, we were talking, or you guys were talking about the internet before. That's just changed the way that everybody s- listens to music, obviously, and gets their music, but also the way they feel about it. Mm-hmm. And they don't sometimes have the same thing that I certainly did when I was a kid about, oh, that's for old people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think older people are afraid to go and say, well, you know what? I want to go and see this artist even though I'm old enough to be their mum or dad. Mm-hmm. I just want to go and see them. And I, I think that that generational thing has gone away to a great de- a great degree, you know. Um, well, well, I just think the, the festival thing, if you look at that, it's so eclectic these days, who you can be on before or after or on the next stage to and what have you. It's just unbelievable. So when you look at the audience, there's a bit of that as well. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a random bag of people that just want to hear music, you know, and don't mm-hmm. really, yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's quite a beautiful thing to be honest. But no, I do too. I think this, like with the audience now, you know, because no one has to pay for music anymore. 
<laughs> I think that it's just mm -hmm. pretty much they have the room to explore in a way that we didn't. You know, what I mean, yeah. if we had to go to a record store, you had ten dollars. That ten dollars was a choice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You had to make yeah. real decisions. But now, you know, with everything available, they just hear music, you know, and I saw that. That was what I saw at the gig. Like they don't even think like my kids and my son, like they don't even look in terms of genre or anything. If they like it, they like it, and that's all they know, and that's yeah, all they care right. about. Yeah, I think the other thing is they don't they don't actually care if the artist is dead. And I don't mean that in a callous right. way or a no emotion way. They're just like, right. I love this. What is it? Oh, it's Frank Sinatra. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Do you know who Frank Sinatra was? Not really. Well, come and have a look at this, and I'll explain it to you. Yeah, you know there's I mean? no more context. There's no more new music and old music. It's just music you know and yeah. music you know. That's it. Right. Yeah. So um, can you tell us where... In the UK, were you born? I'm assuming that you were born in the UK. Where were you born? Yeah, no, I was. I was. I was born in a very, very small town, and it's uh, equidistant from Liverpool and Manchester. It's right in the middle of both of them. It's about 20 miles either side. Uh, that town is called Newton Le Willows, and that is hyphenated, as in Newton in the Willows. Uh, mm. It sounds a lot posher than it actually is. It's okay. It was an okay place to grow up and everything, and my sister still lives there, and my mum up until she passed away recently lived there and, and it's it's an okay town, but it's a small town. And we then, so for us, going to either Manchester or Liverpool was our way of going to a shop that might have some actual trendy clothes or, you know, more than one record store. Do you know what I mean? Where you could go mm -hmm. to like four or five, you know. And obviously the first time we really went to stores to go and look at musical instruments, that was in Manchester because you know, you jumped on the train or you got, you know, an older brother sister to take you and you went into Manchester. That was our, our big deal with, you know? I see. Um, can you tell me what your first musical memory was? It's hard to say, obviously, for anybody. Uh, I know the Jungle Book record was a massive thing for me. I mean, old kids love Disney and they love Disney, Disney music because it's, it's amazing. The quality of it is always great. They're still doing great music, I think. Um, but the Jungle Book for me, we had that vinyl record at home. And I'm the youngest of four. So my sister was into all kinds of music. She used to go and watch a lot of, well, she used to watch everything. She'd go into Manchester and Liverpool. And, and so she had a really great record collection. But a lot of her music was like, there was a lot of progressive rock in it. But she'd also have like quite a bit of Bowie, which she'd have a lot of, you know, American classic soul as well. Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, obviously things like that. She loved the Beatles as well, so I grew up with a lot of that. But I wanted the Jungle Book because, obviously, to me, I've been taken to the movies to see the film. And once you've seen a film like that and then you've got the vinyl of it at home, you can you can kind of watch the movie again in your head, can't you? And right, I yeah. just loved it. And that's so for me that I probably just sat there waiting for everyone to leave the room and then got my you know, my moment to put because we probably had one record player when I was five years old. Do you know what I mean? That was probably it. So. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of, I just went to see Paul McCartney actually uh, a week or so ago in Fort Worth in Dallas. We had oh, a wow. night off. And a lot of the Beatles music, uh, as for anybody, obviously, of course, for everybody on the planet, but it was a bit of a game changer, some of those records, I think, even as a really young kid, because a lot of their music at certain times has got a lot of childlike quality to it. There is, mm -hmm. we all, there's, there's, we all live in a yellow submarine going in there. And that, so that as a kid, that brings you in. Do you know what I mean? Then, then all of a sudden you're listening to, I don't know, the whole of Sergeant Pepper or what I've been thinking, what is this? But it's, right. it's, it's, when I say childlike, I don't mean that in any derogatory way. Obviously, I mean, there's a real innocence to some of their stuff, even though it becomes really complicated and 
intricate and beautiful as well. There's a real simplicity to it at times, you know? So, so I think the Beatles were quite an easy one to, to get into as well. Well, because they were, they were influenced by, you know, Tim Pan Alley, which, you know, that, that sort of era of music of Tim Pan Alley is, is closer to show tunes and musical stuff. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's, it's rather genius that you can create music that an eight year old that can stick to an eight year old and an 80 year old at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. And seem hip. Do you remember the first music that you purchased yourself with your own money? Well, it wasn't money exactly. My dad had given me some money to go and buy a pair of jeans, right? And mm-hmm. there was a store. This wasn't in Manchester or Liverpool. This is in a, a local town to us, a small town. There was a little store that sold jeans and all kinds of different things that kids would wear, you know. And he gave me the money and I went in and I bought the jeans. I was probably only about nine years old at this point. He was probably outside in the car waiting for me kind of thing. And I went in, say nine, I could have, whatever went in and it also had like a little record store as part of it which was a bit bizarre i guess but whatever mm-hmm. and you bought a pair of jeans on that day and they allowed you to have a single so i went in next door and i'm just looking i had no clue and i knew my dad was in the car like waiting he's like he's not going to be messed around you know mm-hmm. so i just said uh i'll have whatever's number one please <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was luckily it was i feel loved by donna summer so i got a great record out of it anyway um, so that, yeah, but that but that, that wasn't my um so I was eleven now, I think. Um that it wasn't necessarily a choice and it wasn't really my money, if you know what I mean. It sort of came with the pair of jeans. Right. But it was quite a, it was quite a thing because when I went home, I suddenly kind of realized i I own this record. It's not one of my brothers or my sisters. This is mine. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. all I'd done really was just pinch their records and just played them. You know, that's all I'd done up to that point. So at least by that point. Did you have a singing voice? Were you? Um, I was always picked to be in school plays. I was in a church choir as well, but it's not, as you guys will know, it's not a gospel or anything. It's a very, very (laughs) Church of England and very kind of straight and white and like, you know, but it's still singing with other people. And that, I still think that thing of a choral group of people making that, that, I'm going to say noise. I'm not even going to call it music right now. Just making that noise together is the most, What's the word to use? It's the most sort of primeval way of making music because, mm-hmm. you know, when you take away the organists, and I remember we used to do that, we used to sing just on our own a lot of the time, and especially when he was like getting us through different pieces to learn them and everything. It's just a bunch of people using this to make a noise. And it's quite, I'm not saying I, I use that at all today, but I think it's still, it did something to me, even though I only did it for a couple of years, but it definitely made me aware of the fact that a group of people come together, harmonize or not, or what have you, and make music. And that's and there's no even instrument to go through. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I even think from a timing point of view, because I, I got into playing drums when I was a little kid and stuff. I wouldn't say little kid, but I was probably in my teenage years. If you're not in sync and in time as a choir, it's just a mess. And I think that even sort of got me going a bit with, you know, got to be on the rhythm you know on the beat and everything you know so basically singing with a choir taught you how to blend with other voices and I, I guess yeah i mean i'm still not very good at that now to be honest i'm i'm one of those archetypal kind of big head drum person singers that when i try and do <laughs> harmonies i do the harmony and i'm great and then at some point i go oh, i've lost it now and i start singing the, the singing the, the lead, lead again yeah because <laughs> I, I find it really hard to do it 
And even when I do, you know, when I'm working on something at home and I'm just putting harmonies in and stuff, I sometimes have to map them out on a piano and then bang them into my head, do you know what I mean? Literally to be able to get me singing the harmony. So, yeah, so I don't know. So, so by the mid 70s, um, and I've heard, you know, this narrative from people that grew up in London at the time. I mean, so many types of music um, sort of avenues could be traveled by. Like, of course, you know, the the punk movement is, you know, is 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 ramping up uh, Then the sort of I guess you could say the mod movement or or you know, whatever they call Rudy's or, or whatever you would categorize the specials or madness that those types of sure, groups yeah. or whatever, yeah. Scott groups or whatever. Um, and yeah. then of course, you know, I, I know about the history of Northern soul and uh, generally just, you know, the, the respect that the UK has for soul music in general. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, 77 is where disco is also having its moment. Um, what grabbed you? I mean, to be 11 at that time when there's like five options to go to. Yeah, yeah. What grabbed I, you the most? Um, I, think, I think I've always still, I always have responded to singers, full stop, because I think as much as I admire, I mean, you know, perhaps we'll get into that, I don't know. But I mean, because I started playing drums as a kid, I always loved bands that had interest in drummers. So the police, I absolutely loved. And they weren't punk, but they sort of came out of the punk thing. Uh, Phil Collins is one of my all-time favorite drummers, and he's not even remembered as a drummer half the time. It's ridiculous. But anyway, um, <laughs> but there you go. There you go. I know for a fact that I think certainly with my sister played a lot of Motown at home mm-hmm. and, and a lot of Northern Soul as well, actually. And, and they're, they're very, very, very similar. And to be honest, I struggled to, to find out which is which half the time, but whatever. And all of those records are very much about the vocals. I mean, you were mentioning Motown before about when they used to go out and do tours and stuff, like a review tour and stuff. Any one of those vocalists would, in my opinion anyway, kind of wipe the floor with with a lot of people who've had the chance to make records since, to be honest. I think Motown was an absolute golden era for mm-hmm. vocalists. Because even though the songwriters and producers of those records were incredible and amazing, and they had such a platform to go from as a singer those voices have stood the test of time forever and i don't think there's a person with a pulse that doesn't respond to motown and obviously it's the groove it's the feel it's the everything it's also because marvin gay diana ross whatever you know name any of them when they sang you didn't question it at all it was just truly amazing Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. 
From Bobby Schmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Do you have a memory of uh, your first concert? I can't remember which came first. My sister, like I said, used to go to gigs all the time. So when I was about 10, um, my sister took me to see, one One was Supertramp, which is hmm. self-explanatory for anybody who knows Supertramp music, and I'm sure everyone does unless you've been living under a rock. Right. Um, as a 10-year-old kid, I was completely blown away, but blown away in loads of different ways because I was 10. I shouldn't really have been there, perhaps, but she, I think she used to think I was like a fashion accessory to bring a 10-year-old kid to a gig where everyone's kind of smoking different things oh, and what right. have you and hanging out and doing it. But it just blew me away. And their music, I think, is because the other band, and I don't know which was first, but it was a band called Camel, and that's a progressive rock band, and I've said this before, who have flute solos longer than some of the records I've made. Do you know what I mean? Oh, so it's shit, kind really? of like, yeah, to, I mean, to, I mean, you know, it wasn't about vocalists. It was about the music. It was, but you know, and but the Supertramp one, I think, was amazing for so many different reasons. They were, well, still are, but they were such an amazing band because they had great, like, sort of pop songs. Maybe that's not a fair term to call them, but they were very popular, so they were pop songs. But the instrumentation and the way they used to go about it was really quirky, was really different, and kind of a bit like nothing else, but to me anyway, listening to it. So I came out of, well, both those gigs, but I can't remember which one was first. And I think it was a game changer for me. I kind of thought, I want to do that. Because when the lights went down, 
they turn on the smoke machine and then the coloured lights come on and it all, even back then, you know, going to a gig was like this mystical, mythical experience. It was like something, it was like another world, you know. So, yeah, so I think both of those were game changers, yeah, big time. The first band you were in, it was called uh, F- FBI? Well, that, that was the second one. I was in a band oh. called Give, Give Way because we have a sign in the UK. You may have it in America. I can't remember. It's a, it's a triangle. It says Give Way. And our bass player, Jeff, stole one on the way home uh, from somewhere and stuck <laughs> it in front of my drums. And we said, oh, that's what we're called then. Right, okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was, that was when I was still at high school, as you call it. And... There were three bands who did an audition for the music teacher to see who could play at the Valentine's disco. Right. And we were like 15 going on 16 at this point. Mm-hmm. And I was never one of the cool kids at school. I wasn't really a geek. I wasn't like, you know, a SWAT or a, or a whatever. I just, I just got through school. If you know what I mean, I just kept my head down and got through it. The other couple of bands, one of them was all the cool kids. Like there was a captain of the football team, soccer team, captain mm. of this, you know, the good-looking guys, they had all the nice guys, but you know what I mean? They were the cool kids, you know? And we weren't, but we could play. So so we did the audition, and we blew the other bands away. I was singing So Lonely by the police from the drums, which was like the coolest thing in the world, because it was like, you know, we were doing police songs, and they were doing something that wasn't anywhere near as cool as that. Right. And we did a couple of other things. We also did um, a Joy Division song, which again was like just the coolest thing in the world, I think. It's, you know, the teacher was were not expecting that at all. And and so we got the gig. And I got five Valentine's cards that year. Ah. <laughs> were you the lead singer of the group or was no, it? No, no, no. The bass player Jeff was, but I used to sing a couple from the drums. And um and again Your voice was that high to sing so lonely? I sang it an octave lower. Oh, I was about to say, man. Like, that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I forget. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I just think again, talk about pivotal moments and stuff. Not because I got the Valentine's cards, but we were, we walked around school for the next two weeks as if we were different people. Like people, I'm not. We we didn't have high five back then. I don't think. I don't think it was a thing to high five somebody. But it was mm-hmm. like we people just kind of like, you know what I mean? Just getting acknowledged in the corridors at school or out in the playground or what have you. We were just. We became different people overnight because we'd done this gig and it was like, yeah, I don't know, really. It was very, it was very interesting, I think, in terms of your ego right. and just just the, the, the absolute joy of walking off stage going, wow, we just we just did that. That just happened. People actually listened and danced and, you know, so, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I went through that in high school, but I I wasn't the band that blew everyone away. I was one of the bands that got blown away. Because oh. <laughs> I, I, went, I, I went to school with boys to men. So, oh, wow. You're joking. Yeah. So I, I still say they cheated, but you know, they, you know, they had tuxedos and glitter and wow. top hats and canes and everything. Oh, and they were singing, word. they were singing new edition songs. And I just felt like wow. all my hopes and dreams to impress, like who I wanted to impress, just it went down the drain. Cause like, <laughs> <laughs> and could they could they sing that great then as well? Were they really great then? Dude, they were they were yes, they were if ever there was a group of people ready for their close-up, wow. it was boys to men. And the thing was is that after that Valentine's thing was over, like girls were treating them like it was, you know, you ever see the uh, I wanna hold your hand movie 
Robert oh, yeah, Zemeckis' yeah. first film about the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they were chasing them in, like, seventh period and all this stuff. And I'm like, it's just them. Like, what the hell? Yeah, They're yeah. not stars. Yeah. They go to our school. But, yeah, they, after that performance, things were never the same again. Listen, I, I feel your pain. I also think it's a weird, weird, weird thing. No, I was not one of the kind of cute kids at school or good-looking kids by any stretch of the imagination, right? But I think what happens is when you've been on TV and on a record cover and on a what have you, the media themselves start calling you handsome or start calling you something. I don't know what, but you know. And and it's like, nah, you got this wrong. I'm exactly the same as I was last week. It's just I've had a hit record. But you, I mean, that is pretty crazy to be at school with with boys to men and them singing the way they do. If they were singing like that back then, that must have been wild. Yeah, they they had every girl in the palm of their hands. Were you thinking of a music career by this point, or was it just like, you know, I'll graduate school and then go to university? And no, I think I wanted to. I think my upbringing was kind of what was it? I'm from a very working class area, but my dad had a little business. He had he ended up having a little garden center, and we all we all my two brothers and my sister and all of us kind of off and on did work there. And I used to work there in school holidays and after school and all the rest of it. And so we were lucky in the respect that we did kind of have a little job to go to. He didn't I'd have a big, he didn't employ lots of people or anything. I think he employed one or two other people and then we kind of worked there and stuff. And the, where we were from was kind of hit very, very badly in the mid and late 80s in terms of the way that the world changed. You know, we don't, we don't manufacture so much in the UK anymore, like, like America to that degree, you know, and we don't mm-hmm. do a lot, you know, coal mines and all the, all the old things. That, all the old industry that we're yeah, still hanging the, on to. Yeah, and, and people, certainly from the little town where I'm from and, and a lot of towns around it, those things don't exist anymore. And it was in that transition period, you know. Um, so we were really lucky that my dad did have a little business and it survived and everything. But we didn't really have a lot of money or anything like that. And I think for me, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to get out of that little town and I wanted to go and do something with my life. I don't know what, what that meant, Um and I think the truth of it was, I kind of felt that music was a way of possibly doing that. And I did love music. Don't get me wrong, I did. You know, I, I got a drum kit when I was 15 and I was never, ever off it, just ever. I used to play in my dad's greenhouse, which he used to have this fairly big glass house, you know, where the plants were and all the rest of it. And he allowed myself to have a drum kit there and my two friends to come and play there as well, which is we made an awful racket, even though we were, you know, we thought we were great. But um, <laughs> so that was pretty lucky. But I also think my mum and dad divorced when I was really, really young. And I didn't have the happiest of home lives, if you know what I mean. It wasn't, it wasn't tough. It wasn't horrible in, in what a lot of people have been through. But it definitely left a hole. There's no doubt about it. My mum and dad, they're both passed away now. Um, they never spoke to each other, ever. Um, wow. If my mum rang the house, my dad would just kind of like, he'd just put the, the phone receiver down and walk away. And that's how we knew it, it was my mum. Do you know oh. what I mean? And and oh. and I was brought I was brought up by my dad. I lived with my dad because it's a long story. But um, I saw my mum all the time. But I think I also felt somehow, even at that age, and I'm not saying I actually knew this, but I think I felt it somewhere that music and getting out of that was going to take me away from that. Do you know what I mean? It was going to mm-hmm. give me a different life where I could sort of start again. And I think sometimes if you if you brought up in a, a fairly unhappy house, which I was. Um, you just want to kind of like turn the key on a door and walk into another space and just leave it where it is. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying you can't ever go back there, right. but I'm just saying just just start again. 
And I did, I did feel that music was going to be the escape to do that, you know, to become to get in a successful band and just start again, you know. So when did that moment happen for you where you're like, okay, I'm pursuing this 100%? Um, I'd have to say I was about 17, I think, because the, the, the band that I got in next was called FBI. And the first group I was in that we were in for a little while, one of the guys went to university. And so we just, and he's still a friend today, actually. I see him for coffee like once every two weeks. Um, <laughs> we're, 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 um, he went to university and, you know, all the rest of it. And we just split up. So I joined this other group and they were like, they were called FBI because of, um, uh, it goes back to a group called The Shadows, who were the backing band for Cliff Richard. Do you know who Cliff Richard is? He's an English guy. Like, no, Cliff Richard. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it goes through. So he was like the English Elvis, if you like. You know what I mean? He was like yeah. the, you know. And um, and they had a song called FBI, I think. I think that's where it comes from. And the guy who was the lead guitarist in this in this band that I joined called FBI was a Shadows freak. He absolutely loved them and so did his dad. I think he got it from his dad, really. So okay. they were doing covers like that. They were doing a lot of early, early Beatles songs. Which are fantastic and great, don't get me wrong, but I would have loved to have been playing some of the later Beatles songs, <laughs> but we, we weren't. We were playing the really, really early ones, um, mm -hmm. which is still great, like I say, and, and for a young band to learn to learn them anyway. Um, and I got in that band as the drummer, and I sort of became the singer because I wanted us to kind of try and write some of our own material. And I borrowed a guitar from one of the guys, and he showed me the three chords. Mm -hmm. And so I turned up at rehearsal a few weeks later and said, I've written some songs. Should we thrash them out? And I sort of became the singer because of that, really, because they were all looking at me going, well, who's going to sing that? You know, and they said, well, you are. So, uh, so that, that's it. So we got a drummer. And then from that point, I think I just sort of became the singer by default, really. And at that point, I thought, if we're going to make this happen, I'm going to have to push and drive this. And I think when you started doing your own songs, you think that's a different thing. That's not just earning a living on a Friday and a Saturday and having a regular job. Do you know what I mean? Like doing your job and then earning a bit of extra money. That's mm -hmm. how do we, how do we become, how do we become known? How do we get people to hear these songs? And that, that at that point is like, well, that's what I'm going to do then, you know? By this point, are you developing the voice that we know now or you're still trying to find? Yeah, well, I think, I think one of the things is I think in the eighties, the late eighties, a lot, a lot of, British music, there was there was more kind of um, it was pop, definitely pop, and it was in the charts. It was successful, but it was it, a lot of people sang with a much lower tone or a lower register with their voice. It was very normal today, and I think for twenty five years or more, everything's very very high with male singers most of the time. Uh, and I think back then, a lot of records had a lot of like, for instance, there's a guy called Edwin Collins who was in a band called Orange Juice, right? And he had this voice. Edwin Collins, very, yeah. Very, yeah, yeah. And there, there was a lot of them. There was, um, I'm trying to think right now, and I can't because I'm on the spot to think of them. But what I'm trying to say is there were a lot of voices that were deeper. And it was kind of cool to be that. It was edgy and it was cool. But then okay. when I listened to, for instance, if I listened to, to like Bill Withers, Bill Withers is, is obviously the greatest. He's written some of the greatest tunes. One of the things I absolutely loved and still love about Bill Withers is that he's written some of the biggest songs in the world that five-year-old kids to 85-year-old grandmas know, everybody yeah. knows, they've been it's in movies, they've been in everything, mm -hmm. but he could probably be sat next to you eating a bowl of pasta in a nice restaurant somewhere, 
and I think 95 to 90% of the 90 odd percent of the people in the room wouldn't be able to recognize him. Mm-hmm. And I think that was for me was like an amazing thing about him, really. But that's again, that's another another universe to walk into. But I think, but but he had all the soul in the world, his lyrics, the actual music itself, and the way he played and everything. But his voice obviously was incredibly soulful, but he didn't really do tricks with his voice. He mm-hmm. didn't he didn't do lots of trills and lots of this, that, and the other, which a lot of people do associate with soul and R and B and everything. He didn't do that. He was for me, he was like a folk singer, mm-hmm. just yes. with a lot of soul in it. Just a lot of soul. And so I think somebody like him, and even though Luther could obviously do anything with his voice. And I remember seeing him live and walking out of the room and just sort of going, well, just forget it then, because that's, that's, that's it. There it is. Yeah, see, so in, in your personal time, you, you tried to do a hoo like, no, <laughs> I, 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 To be honest, no is the answer. I very often still sing to this day. I'll, I will always sing never too much to my wife if we're ever in the car that comes on or what have you, because that's one of our songs and I always sort of sing along with it. But he was one of those, I, I don't care what anybody says about anybody else. He was one of those singers that it didn't matter what, what where he was in the whole range of the human voice. Right. It sounded good everywhere. He could do anything, that guy, you know, so. I got to know Luther's uh, longtime manager, Shep Gordon. Yeah. I didn't realize how big Luther was in the UK. Massive. Um, yeah, to the point where I didn't realize that he could sell out like Wembley Arena, for instance. Wembley I saw, Arena. I, yeah, Wembley was the gig. Back in the day, Wembley was the gig in London to go to, Wembley Arena. Right. L- Luther, I think, did, I think, multiple nights there, I think. Yeah, he did like eight or nine nights there. And yeah. He was telling me that basically Luther had a more uh, devoted and diverse fan base. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Over there than here. Yeah, yeah. You know, here, I mean, here, yes, he could still, you know, sell out Madison Square Garden, all those things, like maybe yeah. one, two, three nights in a row. But you know, he it, it took him a long time to sort of cross over to a pop market, you know, like here and now yeah. or you know, give me the reason. Like there was occasional songs that made the top 10. But yeah, yeah, I didn't realize until like I finally watched like live in, in Wembley and realized that, oh, I I didn't realize that Luther. No, it, was, to- it, was, it was huge. And also he I think he and, and and a lot of other artists around him, but I mean, he, for me, vocally is the pinnacle, there's no doubt, really. But I mean, James Ingram was really big in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeffrey Osborne, a lot of those singers around that time that, that you know, did, I think a lot, of, probably a lot of their ballads were bigger mm-hmm. as well, if you know what I mean. I think that was um, what's probably crossed them over to some degree as well, you know, to, you know. Right. But we used to go, we would go, I say we, a group of friends, some of which, most of which were in uh, the second band I was in. Um, we would go to a little night. Well, we, we'd go to different clubs around us, actually, in different towns and into Manchester and stuff. But mm-hmm. in our little town of Newton Lewillows, um, we have a little cricket club, and it's been there forever. And they used to have Monday nights and Friday nights. And the Monday nights were under 18, and the Friday were over 18. So there was alcohol and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But they also used to have occasionally on a Friday night, they had a guy called Kev Edwards, who was a DJ in the town I'm from. Kev. And he would, only, he would only play records that, I'm not saying all of them were imported, but he always used to have records before anybody else. Mm-hmm. So he would play, and we all used to go and we'd dress up. We, we wore jackets and ties. This is in the, 
this is in the sort of 84, 85, 86, right? Mm-hmm. We would go and wear jackets and ties. Well, I'm saying 86, yeah, 85, 86 for sure. Um, cheap ones, you know, we just bought these jackets and ties from God knows where, do you know what I mean? But we'd all go and we'd dance in lines. And all the girls, especially new, dance moves and different routines. And a right. certain song would come on. And for instance, let's say, I'm not sure when Never Too Much came out exactly, but let's say that, that song came on. Mm. Some of the girls would actually even have a routine for it. Oh, really? So it was choreographed and... And that's that's not just my little town where I'm from. That is, especially, that was a very big thing in the north of England, but also in the south. If you speak to people about, I mean, not just Luther Vandross, obviously, because like I say, he's probably the biggest one to cross over in so many different ways. I think a lot of that music that was around that came from America, Black American soul music, was a massive part of our, our getting down and having a good night and having a good, you know, we, we wouldn't even drink alcohol. We'd just go out and drink an orange juice or a Coke or what have you because we wanted to go and dance to music. And that was a big thing for us. It really, really was. What a novel idea. Now we just do it on TikTok. Yeah. Much. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen seems like an easy choice to be columbia pfg has you covered with their Castback tc shoe its omnimax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot say fighting a fish not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet rocking boat 
So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Take us on the the, the, the path that leads you to actually pursuing a, a solo career um, so, and um, and meeting with uh, Stock, uh, Aitken yeah, Waterman. Aitken Waterman. Well, we were the, the second band I was in, FBI, we weren't really making waves exactly, but we were getting better gigs and we were earning a bit of money and we were this, that and the other. We'd had uh-huh. one or two record labels come and have a look at us, but they were a bit, you know, we were too naive really and we didn't really have it together really. But anyway, one of the guys who came up to see us actually saw us in in what we used to call a battle of the bands where you would you would have you know over over maybe a couple of nights or even a couple of months on different nights bands mm-hmm. would come together from an area and we'd all be competing for a prize basically but also it was like little audiences you could get together and it's a judges in one of those and he requested that he, re- he would like to see us again so in other words we did a showcase for him mm-hmm. with a couple of other bands and it sort of turns out that we kind of did that really because he liked my voice, heard something in my voice that he thought that there was some potential in it and he could do something with it. Okay. So he asked me to come down to London and I did with, with the two guys who were kind of managing us at that point. And I didn't really exactly grasp who he was or what he was, but mm-hmm. he had red leather pants and he had a Jaguar. Mm-hmm. And that was enough for me. That was enough. Red leather pants and a Jaguar. I mean, come on. So, <laughs> He's so, obviously doing something right. Yeah. So so I went down to London to meet him. And um, he kind of explained that, look, he wasn't interested in signing the band. He didn't really want to work with bands. He wanted to work with vocalists because he was part of this trio that worked with And they weren't really famous at that point. They hadn't really had any really big hits at that point. They right. were just on the cusp of it. They were right on the edge of it. But I didn't know that. But I kind of thought, well, I signed a little deal with their production company after about six months of chatting a couple of times about it because I didn't really want to leave my friends, which they were. They were, my, you know, my closest friends and all the rest of it. But in the end, I thought, look, I drive the van, I write the songs. I sometimes have to get people out of bed. So I'm just going to give this a try. And I did. And how hard was it breaking the news to them, though? Well, that wasn't comfortable at all. I thought one or two of us were going to come to actual you know, fists or what have you, but it didn't, it didn't. And it was all, you know, but it wasn't great if I'm honest. Um, and at one point we were just going to try and keep the band together. And I was going to pursue this and see what happened and see if we could marry the two together or get something going with a single or two and then see what we could do. Um, but anyway, I signed a deal with them after, after a little while. And then, and then amazingly, um, they had a number one record. Uh, with an artist called Princess. Um, Samuel number one? Yeah. Samuel number one. They did that? Yeah. So you know that tune, yeah? Oh, yeah, that's that's damn. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. For starters, I didn't... Wait, she's from the UK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dog, I thought she's from Brooklyn. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No. And, oh, um, my gosh. Samuel well, number one. Damn, yeah, they was, did that. <clears throat> so I was kind of around. They had their own studio. And I was kind of around in the process of them. I'm not saying I was on the sessions. I wasn't. But I was mm-hmm. kind of around a little bit. And so they had this number one record. And the, everyone in the business in the UK went, who, what is that? Who is that? What's, who is who's she? What's, who produced it? Who wrote it? What's going on? Because um, it was quite, 
it was a big record. It was a number one record. But I mean, it was also quite a sort of an ear turn. It was like, what is that? Because mm-hmm. it was, it was, it was in a, it had a, it had like a toe in a lot of different places. If you know what I mean, it, it, a finger in lots of pies. It, 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 it I don't know. Yeah. It wasn't. I'm not saying it wasn't R and B, but it sort of wasn't. And it was very British sounding, but it also sounded kind of like. And she was a great singer. Obviously, is a great singer. Yeah. You know, but I'm saying it, it, it could have been. It was a lot of things. You know. Anyway. It was, it was, to me, it was like a lush song. It, it wasn't a ballad, but it also wasn't a jam, but I always oh. heard it in clubs. And even the, even the, the, the chord structures and stuff, like it was very dreamy sounding and yeah, yeah. very, yeah. very unique song. I, I love yeah, it's DJ. A cool record. I think it's a mm-hmm. cool record, I think. Yeah. So, so anyway, so, and at the time they're also working, um, they just started working or, around that time uh, on Dead or Alive. So the mm-hmm. you know you spin me round record that whole album and everything right and and the record industry I think I mean I'm going back I'm kind of putting the thoughts I'm not saying I had the thoughts at the time I'm just remembering what was going on and what I must have been thinking but they they were looking at meeting we'll sign this kid and I think they'd sign somebody else as well but we're not going to get to work on them because all of a sudden we're like beginning to be a little bit hot as producer writers and people are asking for us to do things. Mm-hmm. So we can't start doing our own projects because people are throwing money at us and we need to pay the bills. So in a nutshell, Pete kind of sat me down and said, look, we're going to, you know, we are going to make a record, but we've got to get on with this thing right now. Do you want to come and live in London and you can become like an assistant, hang out at the studios, get to see how we do things? Because I was green as grass. I was pretty nervous. I'd only been to London like twice in my life before then anyway, you know. And so I got mm-hmm. to live and I ended up living at his flat for the first weeks of it and everything. I just used to go into the, so I would go, he'd be driving his Porsche because he had a Porsche as well at this point. So he must've been doing something right. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd be driving this Porsche and he'd be on his massive eighties phone having <laughs> these conversations. And I'm sat next to him, this 19 year old kid going, I have no idea about the language he's using because it was all about record deals and A&R people, which I didn't even know what an A&R man was at that point, all this different stuff. And I'm just trying to soak it up and learn, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up being at their building I'd say for nine months maybe even a year and I made tea coffee got the sandwiches like all the other kids did in the building you know all the tape ops as it used to be mm-hmm. and then Bananarama came in the building and they made some great records for them and it just kept going so they made all these and then there was this a sister's duo called Mel and Kim who they had massive success with as well get um, fresh at the weekend yeah there you go. They did that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah they did that. Yeah. Shit. I, I, yeah, again, yeah. I thought they're still alive. Are they still like? Is that team? Are they still alive? Yeah, the three guys. You mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they don't work together anymore, but they're all still going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I, I had mean, no clue that this was coming from London. Like, in my my head, like I thought this was all like New York stuff. Like, well, they they would be they would be really happy to hear that, to be honest, because I think. I think the thing with those guys, what used to frustrate me at times later on, this is, is that they they got pigeonholed, but they almost did it themselves. They kind of created a sound and went, that's what we do. And that's it. Right. But mm-hmm. and I think artists fitted into that sound more than them. But in the early beginnings of it, I don't think they did. If you listen to that, say, I'm your number one record, you listen to Spin Me Round, you listen to Mel and Kim. They are very three very different sounding records, different artists, different everything. Mm-hmm. And I think they wanted to emulate like a Motown. But unfortunately for me, I think they didn't then go out and try and find Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder. They thought they right. were good enough to get anyone to sing their songs and still have that thing. You know what I mean? 
so at what point are they ready to put you in? Like, well, are you ready? One of, one of the things, one of the issues was, um, well, this is, well, I'll just explain this for a second. Cause right. So they'd signed me to their production deal, right. Their little production company, which mm-hmm. sort of went on, on, on the back burner. It kind of got shoved to the side because they were producing major hit records for artists and the, you know, with big record deals. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So Pete Waterman said, right, I need to sign Rick to a major record label because this is the way this is going to work, really. Them doing it themselves, um, they did do eventually, but I think they just thought, we just need to get him signed to a major record label and give it a really big push and all the rest of it. Yeah, I think they were seeing what was happening with some of those records and thinking, right now, at the end of the 80s, you need to be with a major label. That's the way to do this. You know what I mean? So um, so we went to see a guy called Peter Robinson, who was the head of A&R at RCA in the UK. Mm-hmm. Lovely guy. I've just, just met him again recently a few times, actually. Lovely guy. And he said, well, this is all great to Pete Waterman, but I need to hear Rick sing in front of me. I need to see him sing songs, hear him sing these, just sing some songs for me. I can't sign the guy just because... You know, he's going to be your next artist, and you say he's great, and all the rest of it. What a novel idea! Wow, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that exactly. that doesn't happen now. Yeah, well, so we're in the car, we're in the Porsche on the way back, and he's on the phone, right? And um, he said to Matt and Mike, which is Stock and Aiken, and they are the two musicians in the threesome, really, Pete's more A and R and ideas and all that. He said, right, you need to do like a little showcase with Rick singing for Pete Robinson at RCA, and they both went, nope, that's not what we do. We're making records. So Pete said, right, you know those demos you've got, Rick? And I've done these little demos in a four-track studio back in the hometown where I'm from. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I went up north, went home, got the vocals taken off, brought them down on a cassette, played the cassette for Pete Waterman, Peter Robinson from RCA, a couple of other people, one of my kind of managers at the time. And I sang on an SM58 microphone, which to everybody listening who doesn't know is the bog standard. That's what you use in it. Yeah, yeah, there you go. No reverb. And it just came out of this shitty speaker that I'd found in the basement because I was one of the tape ops making tea and getting the biscuits, right? So I knew where all the shitty (laughs) old gear was. And I sang in the reception to four of my songs that I'd done, right? I'd played everything, demoed and everything. So as soon as I've finished the songs, Peter Robinson from RCA says, who wrote these songs? And Pete Waterman, who at this point, has got no intention of me ever writing a song. <laughs> said, oh, he's a great songwriter as well. So, because obviously he knew within a second that that, that, was, that, that was his way that he was going to get a major deal. Right. The artist that they signed and owned and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I ended up, I ended up from that point getting like, I got four songs on the first album. I didn't get a single on the first album, but I got four songs. And I got like a few more on the next record and stuff like that. But I was sort of, all of a sudden, I was getting to do my demos. I think I already was actually, but I was getting to do like, really was getting to do my demos on like an SSL board with an engineer who last week had been making a number one record with Dead or Alive or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I'm doing my demos like that because that's just the way it was, you know. And, And I used to do them at the weekend or through the night. And so... I can't remember what we were talking about to be honest, because I was getting excited again, remembering all that. But anyway, it was like a mad, it was a mad one of those moments where it's like, I'm just going to sing their songs and that's cool. We'll just see where it goes to, okay, now my songs are involved and, and they were naive songs. Don't get me wrong. They really, really were. But, you know, mm-hmm. 
yeah, I don't know. I was really lucky, I think, to be at the Stockhake in Waterman moment where it exploded and they became this huge thing. And even though I hung around for almost a year, making tea and getting the sandwiches and tidying up the room, you know what I mean, doing all of that stuff, I also got to do a lot of stuff. Like I used to go to the pub every night with the guys and I was allowed to sit on their table while they talked about, you know, how to produce this. And they talk about, well, have you heard this new record, that kick drum, the way that that does this, or this baseline is amazing or what have you. And it was, it was like a, um, like doing an internship, but I just didn't realize I was doing it. You know, were you around for like, one of the songwriting sessions when they're putting songs together or yeah, is it always just here, sing this. It's already no, done. I mean, no, I mean, they, they never going to give you up. For instance, the first, you know, my first song and, and biggest one, obviously they, they'd hired a guy called Ian Kernow. He was, um, a pro, well, he wasn't a programmer, but he became a programmer for them. And, and I mean, programming the loose terms of he, he was an amazing keyboard player and he, you know, put tracks together for them and stuff and ideas and stuff. Mm-hmm. So Mike yeah. Stock came down to his room And I was literally making the coffee. I remember it. I I just made a fresh pot of coffee. Mike Stock comes down. They just bought a Fairlight computer. I don't know whether you guys ever worked with a Fairlight back in the day. Yes. And I I was like completely blown away by this. I was like, what what world are we living in, you know? (laughs) And so Ian set to work and Mike Stock came down. He put the chords in and he kind of sang in the melody, the rough melody, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ian was making some notes and all the rest of it. So I just kept Ian going with coffee and biscuits and sandwiches and whatever he wanted. And I sat there having just heard my first single and then kind of watched it get put together. And then obviously we went upstairs and took it into the big room and all the rest of it. And, you know, and that song went through so many transitions because the bass line and the drums were very, very different than when they began. And I've got to give credit to the Stockholm Walton guys for that, but I've got to give more credit to Colonel Abrahams, to be honest, because they, they pinched the bass line from um, Trap. Trap. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think I was kind of one of the, the only artists who was actually part of their setup, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other artists came in, and yeah, and some of them actually wrote with Stockholm Kim Walton or just came into the vocals or whatever it was. But I'd literally been around to the, you know, the Greasy Spoon Cafe to get their lunches for the last six months. Do you know what I mean? And got the coffee right. and all the rest of it. And I even remember there was one session where a guy had come in to do a sax solo on a song. It was actually, uh, they were doing a cover of um, uh, Ain't You Proud to Beg by The Temptations because Pete wanted me to sing some songs like that just to test my voice out and see whatever. So this guy came in to do a solo on it and he said, mm-hmm. who's, he said who's singing that? It's a great voice that, who's singing? And, and Matt Aiken, one of the producers said, don't say too much because he's just walking in now with your coffee. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, it was like, it was so upside down that I'm making coffee for the guys doing the saxophone solo on my goddamn record. But it was also, <laughs> it was also pretty amazing because I kind of felt a bit more part of it. And I felt a bit more, I'm not saying that I earned the right to be there, but I think I at least, I understood a bit more than, than perhaps sometimes when, a young kid gets plucked from obscurity, just say, right, sing this, right, right off you go. This is the suit you're going to wear, now off you go. Do you know what I mean? It, I just felt like well, I kind of, yeah. You know, that that was Marvin's start, too. You know, he started out at Motown running errands. Really? I didn't you know, know Wow. Yeah, he was, like, running errands first, and then, like, he was, like, house drummer, and then, you know, once he started cozying up to Anna Gordy, then she realized that he had a, a velvety voice and was sort of like hey you're you know you're obviously doing the wrong jobs you 
it's time yeah, for you to start singing. I can't even imagine that. He's also one of the most beautiful looking men that, that's ever walked the earth. And it's like, with that, the way he looked and that voice, right? Well, I didn't that's, somebody see that before, you know? Yeah. That's how he nabbed Anna Gordy to, right, okay, <laughs> to, okay, to get to the front of the line. Um, so, you know, in your, well, to hear you tell the story, it's like, you know, you, you were just around, you're running errands, you're going to sing the song, whatever. At what point does it hit you that like, yo, um, this is making it because it's not like you're one, you know, and I know that this song is now going to live forever in, in, you know, past pop culture. Um, but it's also overshadowing the fact that you also had like eight other, you know, top 10 hits as well. Yeah, but I also think that happens with artists sometimes. I mean, obviously, you, you can look at the greats, and I don't know how many greats got now, but, and a lot of artists, and I'll throw myself in that, have mm-hmm. got one that everyone remember them from, and then when they go on Spotify or what I mean, they go, oh, I kind of remember that one as well, and oh, did he do that? I didn't know that. You know what I mean? There's a bit of that going on, but right. so I don't feel any... I'm not, I don't, I don't have any hangups about, I'm glad I've got that song because it, it, it sort of opens doors and windows for me all the time. So I, I'm okay with it, you know, but it's but, weird to hear that because most of the times I'll run into artists that hate their biggest, yeah. you know, I, like yeah. Nirvana famously stopped playing smells like teen spirit the last yeah. year and a half. De La yeah. Soul hates me, myself and I, I'm working with Mary J. Blige right now. And mm-hmm. Jesus H, like, you know, the, the amount of number one songs she has where it's like, I don't do that no more. I don't do that no more. I don't do okay. that. Like, it's like, come on. I think I think a lot of it, though, I don't know, we're jumping time frame now, but a, a lot of it goes to the fact that when I kind of quit, um, I was about 27, 28, and I quit for a lot of reasons. I'd had enough. I knew the writing was on the wall. To sustain any kind of pop career, is almost impossible, to be honest. As we say, there are some greats who've done it, but it's it's so difficult, you know, because it just is. And you've got to give everything, everything you've got, time-wise, effort-wise, everything, all your energy, everything to it. And I was a bit sick of it, and I just didn't want to do it anymore, blah, blah, all those reasons. I was super lucky I got to do it for the time I did. Um, so I didn't sing Never Gonna Give You Up altogether forever or anything else for about 15 years. The only time I ever, or maybe more, actually, the only time I ever did it, was at friends' weddings. That's the only time I ever did it, right? And now I do it at friends' kids' weddings, which is even which is even greater, to be honest. That, that really, <laughs> that gets me right there that they want me to do that. So that's cool. But I didn't sing those songs. I didn't sing Never Gonna Give You Up, you know, Night After Night or the da And I've sort of lived a very simple, very uh, comfortable, thank heavens, and I do thank heavens, and I'm grateful for that, but a very obscure life, if you know what I mean, in terms of like, you know, I haven't been famous for all those years in terms of that. I mean, I know there's been a bit of fame come back because of Rick Rowling and the, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I approach singing Never Gonna Give You Up completely differently, I think, than perhaps artists who've done it for 33 years. I, I When I came back to it, um, it's sort of happened in two ways. Um, a promoter who is massive in the UK and is involved in managing me as well, I bumped into him at a, at a, at a showcase in a tiny little pub in London because friends of mine had, had written the tracks and everything. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, why don't you sing? Why don't you? And I said, no, nah, I'm done really. I, I, you know, and he said, well, why don't you just go out and do it again? I said, well, you know, I haven't done it for years. And, and he said, well, what if I, anyway, he got in touch with him. What if I put a little tour together? You can sing anything you want. It'd just be in front of a few hundred people, nothing big. You don't even have to sing your old songs if you don't want. 
just walk out there and sing and see if you want to do it again. I'm like, who is this guy? What the, you know? And um, it turns out this guy is an amazing guy. And, and he promotes like things from like Coldplay Adele right the way down to brand new bands, right? He just loves it, lives right. it, he breathes it. Wow. So I'm like, what a crazy offer that is. It's just unbelievable. And around the same time, I also had an offer to go to Japan and I'd always turned down all the offers to sing all my old songs. And I just thought, so anyway, so I did this little tour and I sang Frank Sinatra, Burt Baccarat, anything I wanted to that I remember as a kid, my mom and dad used to play. Mm-hmm. And my dad had a really great voice, actually. And he used to sing, he used to sing the wrong words, but he used to sing Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. around the house all the time. Mm-hmm. So I went and did that with a little, you know, little brass section, a very small brass section, three guys, two or three guys, I think, actually. And just, you know, just a really stand-up bass, all the rest of it. Tiny little venues. We played Ronnie Scott's. They allowed us to come and do it there because we were doing that kind of thing. Right. Went up and down the country. And I absolutely loved it. And something in my mind went, like a light bulb just went, okay, so you can go out and sing, but it doesn't have to be your be-all and end-all. It's not, it's not every part of your life. You can do it when you want to do it. And I, I accepted this offer to go to Japan mainly because our daughter, who was 15 at the time, and my wife really wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went, and we went on a really lovely trip. And I sang those songs, Never Gonna Give You Up Together Forever, and a bunch of others. And again, the same light bulb went on of like, so you go out, you sing them, you walk off stage, you put a different jacket on, and you go out for dinner. And that's it. Right. It's not like you go out there, there's 300 screaming fans there's people taking your picture. There's uh, you've got to do interviews all day the next day. And by the way, you'll be on a plane at four o'clock going to another territory to do it all again the next day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's you can pick and choose. You can have a life in music that isn't. I'm not saying I can ever attain the success I had in the 80s. I can't possibly do that, but mm-hmm. I can enjoy it a lot more. And that's kind of what I do and what I've done ever since. Can I ask though? Okay, so one, I wanted to know. What was the straw that broke the camel's back as far as you walking away? And yeah. how did you manage to make a living, if you don't mind me asking, yeah, sure. for those 15 years? Yeah. Um, okay. First one, then. I think a lot of things were just coming together. I'd had some, we had some, re- we had, like everybody has got a story about a record they made that never did anything or just didn't see the light of day, didn't get released, did mm-hmm. whatever. So I had a couple of things like that. We did a record, an album, away from Stockholm, my first one, and the first single from it uh, was called Cry For Help. And I was so lucky with that record, but I also knew, well, I might not get to make many more. I thought I'd love to get a couple of my favorite drummers on it. Um, so we did some stuff with uh, Jeff Piccaro came and played drums. We didn't actually use those sections in the end because it turned into something else. Uh, Vinnie Caliuti came and played drums on that song. Oh, Cry the Monsters. Help. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'm sat there in a the room going, I don't know what's going on. And I got to play their drum kits as well, by the way. And obviously, we had some great musicians. Andre Crouch, um, oh, it was his choir that sang that sang on the record. Uh-huh. And obviously, I'm sure to this day, but I, I think around at any of that time through the 90s and, and onwards, if you wanted a choir, there were a couple of choirs to ask, and, and he was probably at the top of it. And so some of those experiences were amazing. But anyway, so that record came out. We had a top 10 in America with that song and a top 10 in the UK and lots of different countries. So I thought, this is crazy. I've left Stockholm in Waterman. I've made a record with Vinnie Caliuti on it and a choir. And yet we still had a top 10. 
And I had long hair as well. I just grew my hair for a bit of a laugh and what have you. And I mm-hmm. thought, that's it. We've, t- we've turned that page. I can go and make records. Cut a long story short, up to that point, I think I'd had like, and this sounds like sour grapes. It's not. I was just shocked by it. I just didn't understand what was going on. The next couple of singles we released didn't really do anything. We didn't get them anywhere near the charts. Yeah. And the weird thing was they were more like pop songs than mm-hmm. the first one. And it transpires that basically the, the head of RCA in the UK was moved out. A new person came along, kind of got rid of everybody and started again. And that was in that transition of in the middle of that record. So, we, so to be honest, we still, I'm not saying this, I'm not, believe me, I'm not bragging. I'm just trying to give you the facts, right? Mm-hmm. We still sold over a million albums with one single. It just didn't go boom, if you know what I mean. And we didn't, and we didn't get any more singles at all in any chart anyway. It just didn't happen. And so it made me realize, and a few like people who know what they're talking about said, look, that just happens every now and again. You can be in the middle of a record, and if your record company just disintegrates, it doesn't matter how good your record is. And even though you've had a hit with it, and it, the album's kind of out there, and it's doing well, and it could even be top 10, in a couple of weeks, it's just going to die a death because there's nothing making it happen. And what it sort of made me realize was that unless your record company really wants this to happen, unless they're really on board... You know what I mean? You've got no chance, really. And I'd never experienced that before. And obviously, I was still a kid, really. I was young, you know. So anyway, so that record kind of ended. So we start to make, how are we gonna, are we gonna make another one? Are we not, are we what have you? So I'd written a song for, a song, I can say this because it's years after now, so it's cool. <laughs> so Madonna was gonna be in a movie called Body of Evidence with Willem Dafoe. I remember that. God, I watched right. this two weeks ago. <laughs> are you are you joking? That's nuts. I wanted That's to watch. I, I had COVID two weeks ago, so I wanted to. Oh, wow. I, I wanted to watch all the horrible films I heard about. Okay. So, so I watched Body of Evidence. Okay. All right. I watched Basic Instinct 2. I didn't even know there was a sequel. Yeah, there was a sequel. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Garbage. Yeah. Basic Instinct, yes, but not Basic Instinct 2. Right. So anyway, so right. somebody who was A&R in the project or what have you had sort of said, well, look, so the guy I wrote Cry for Help with, a guy called Rob Fisher, he and I wrote a couple of songs uh, this song was called Hopelessly that we wrote. We sent it in to possibly be in the movie. We got this thing about saying, look, we absolutely love it. We're going to come to the UK. We want to be involved in how you record it. We don't not to produce it, but we've got to be there. And, uh, but we need it done right away because we're really close. We've just got to get this thing done. Mm-hmm. So we went, great. I was mega excited. I'm like, but there's something in the back of my mind going, why isn't Madonna singing this song? Why isn't she singing her own song? Why isn't she? What's going on here? What? But he said, no, she doesn't want to sing any of the songs. They don't want any. They just, she wants to act and that's it. So I'm like, great, that'll do for me. Madonna's going to be part of, you know, this massive thing and I'm going to get a song in it and let's go. So we do the song. Everyone, <laughs> everyone said, we love it. It's great. It's perfect. We send it off. It's all great. So my record label which is still RCA, BMG at the time, said, right, we need you to make an album because this film's coming out in a few months. And da-da-da. So have you got any songs? I said, well, I've got a lot of songs because I've been writing. I've been, you know, and I said, right, just get in this trade. So I went back in the studio with the guy I'd made the last album with, a guy mm-hmm. called Gary Stevenson, who's still a good friend today. And we just got stuck into making an album. So we did. So Body of Evidence is coming out and they've decided they're not going to have any songs in Body of Evidence. <laughs> They're not going to do this with a lead song because it doesn't really, that's going to confuse people and whatever, right? Maybe yeah, they did yeah, have a song good. in the end. Yeah, they would, maybe they did have a song in the end. I can't remember, but, but they certainly didn't have ours. I don't think they had any. Right. I think they just had the theme music. They didn't want to confuse Madonna's career with like this music. That oh, was out and, uh, it's like, what is it? What, 
Anyway, whatever. And maybe that's just the way I'm remembering it. So at this point, when I go into the record label and I've made an album at this point, most people, when I walk in the building, are kind of looking out the window, hoping not to make eye contact. <laughs> because mm -hmm. now they don't know what to do. Now they don't know what to do. It's like, is this record any good? Is it the right record? Should we be doing this? I'd like to keep my career, so I'm just going to look out the window when he walks in the building. And at this point, I'm like, you know what? I think I'm just going to walk away. I think I'm just going to say, look, I'm going to, while no one's watching, and they obviously weren't, <laughs> I'm just going to walk, I'm going to walk out the side door. And I spoke to my manager who spoke to my lawyer. I was doing promotion for that, that record that had this song hopelessly, which was going to be there, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think we were getting a bit of, we were sort of getting a bit of headway in, in, um, in America, actually, funnily enough. And I was, I was going to the airport, I was going to Heathrow to get on a plane, to go to New York, to be on a TV show, I forget which one, to sing this song hopelessly. And it was sort of getting played a little bit, but it wasn't getting the full, do you know what I mean? And something in me said, I've got a daughter at home who is like, you know, one year old, I think she was, something like that. Uh, I'd just done loads of promotion in Europe and it all felt pointless. Yeah. I don't know whether you guys have been there, but it just felt absolutely. Pointless. It felt like, yeah. you know, it almost felt embarrassing, like sort of like we should just not be doing this really. They don't want to do it. I'm not sure I want to do it anymore. So I'm, I'm going to Heathrow and I turn around to my manager who's still one of my closest people in my life. And, you know, he's a bit of a surrogate father. And I said, I think I'm done. Mm -hmm. and, and he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I just don't want to go and I don't want to go and I don't want to do this. And I knew what it meant because I knew that that's it. You know, you don't, you don't not go to New York to go and do a TV show and the record company go, Oh, that's fine. I said, I think I'm done. So he said, fine, let's call, let's call the lawyer and we'll just see if they'll let you walk away and forget about it. And we'll shake hands and we'll, we'll do that. And so we turned the car around and I went home and I cried a bit. You know, I did, obviously I, met, I knew what it meant. And I just went home and um, we had a bit of a hug. And he drove home and he called my lawyer and he called BMG. And to be fair to them, they said, yeah, we're okay with it. If he wants to quit, we don't want to do it anymore. And, um, and that was it. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating 
Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. That's a rarity to one. Yeah, that's about as good as it gets in, the, in this business. Like, yeah, because most people try to force their will. Yeah, but but I think also I'd had a very explosive pop career, you know, one of those kind of like boom sort of like I'd never really I don't think I'd really come to terms with a lot of it. I don't think I'd, I'd not grown up. I'd gone from being 19 to signing a little production deal, 21 massive single that, you know, on a really big album. It was huge, that album, and mm-hmm. around the world and everything and knots. And, um, and I never really, I never really, I think, got to sort of, uh, get totally comfortable I don't think I think I was always chasing my tail and always kind of like I almost felt like I was always running after a bus that was just always like leaving the, the depot before I got you know what I mean and so right, right. I didn't I didn't grow up as a human I've become a dad but I don't really felt I didn't feel like a grown up you know what I mean so and anyway I'm gonna sorry very long answer so the so next part of the equation is this that first album did really, really well. I wrote four songs on my own on it. The next mm-hmm. album did pretty well. It did about half what the second one did, and I wrote five or six of them. Um, so, and even even the Cry for Help song that was on that album called Free, you know, we did a million something with that record, and I wrote a lot of those tunes and co-produced it and blah, blah. So in other words, I made quite a lot of money because we sold a lot of, you know, that first album sold over eight million, I think. You know what I mean? So we sold right. a lot of records back then because... If you had a hit couple of songs, pop songs, that very often meant you sold a lot of records. And so I just kind of was comfortable with that. But I've never, I've never owned a fleet of Ferraris. I've never driven a Rolls Royce into a swimming pool. Um, <laughs> you you weren't been, balling out of control. No, I've been. I think again, I owe that back to my upbringing in the sense that I'm from a very working class area. My dad had a little business, so I always knew there was a tax man. I didn't understand what it meant as a kid, but I knew he was coming. I knew he wanted some money from my dad. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. So my, my yeah. dad would be sat at home doing his paperwork and he'd be going, right, well, that's for the taxman. I'm like, what? what, what? I, I kind of thought a taxman was going to come with a bag almost. Do you know what I mean? As a kid, I thought, mm-hmm. I thought he was going to knock on the door and go, give me the money, you know, but right. I always knew that was there. And so 
I think every bit of money that I earned, I think also because I was so busy for like certainly the first three, four years. Well, I only did it for four or five years. The first three years of it, I was so busy. I didn't buy anything. I didn't even buy a house until quite a few. You know what I mean? Because I was always traveling. I was always away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and also I think that whole kind of like MTV Cribs, look at my house lifestyle, unless you were one of the absolute greats, Elton John, um, the who, the what have you, you know, um, whoever, you, you didn't, you didn't live like that. I think people just got on with it and then realized they made some money some years later. You know what I mean? You tell um, that to my friends. <laughs> hey, you work with Elton John, man. Uh, speaking of which, what was it like working with him? Yeah, I mean, that guy is amazing in so many different ways. He he got in touch. <clears throat> he cut a long story short. The first time any sort of connection was um, never going to give you up, got this award at the, the BPI Awards of Single of the Year. Mm-hmm. And because it was live back then, it was at the Albert Hall. And um, funnily enough, to just mentioned The Who. Um, the Who were closing the show and they were playing live at the Albert Hall. So the award for single is pretty much one of the last awards. So I was stood on this podium waiting to get the award with the, with the audience looking at me, but not the TV audience. Mm-hmm. And I've got this camera on me. And to me, I'm thinking the camera's on. So I'm just stood there waiting for someone to stand up and go, and the single of the year goes to Rick Hasley for never going right there. You know. mm-hmm. So I'm just stood there and the Albert Hall's low looking at me. And I'm like, but it didn't happen. No one came on the podium and no one gave me the award. And they just somebody just went, ladies and gentlemen, the who? And they just steamed into like, I don't know what song is that? So I'm just stood there going, what is going on? And, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm literally still on this round podium just in the middle somewhere. And I'm going like, do I, and the camera's still looking at me. I'm going, do I, what do I do? Do I walk? Do I shuffle away? Do I walk away? Do I look at the who? And do I, I don't know what to do. And eventually, I just kind of like just sideways, just just kind of walked out of the picture. You like, Irish ex did it. I just walked away. Anyway, I wasn't even upset because I, I was too in the sort of nonsense of it all to be upset. I was like, I don't know what's going on. It's television, mm-hmm. it's live TV. So I woke up, but believe me, backstage, it all kicked off. My God, there was some like hoo-hards, you know, I mean, there really was. And my manager was really angry. I mean, he was like fuming, do you know what I mean? And Right. The Stock Aiken Walkman guys were going ape shit. You know what I mean? It was really, it was a big deal because like they'd actually written and produced the, the song that had done, you know what I mean? The business yeah. that year and blah, blah. So anyway, a couple of days later, a crate of, I think it was Cristal champagne arrive at my manager's office from Elton John to me saying, like, I'm really, really sorry. What an awful thing to happen. That's absolutely terrible. All the best. Keep on making music. Don't let it get you down. Do it a really nice letter. And yeah. I was just thinking, like, this is just how amazing is that? You know what I mean? To sort of, but it, obviously, as time has gone on, I've obviously understood he's had his moments in life, I'm sure, where he's been let down and he's been, do you know what I mean? And I, and, mm-hmm. and I think he's always, he's always done that thing of reaching out to younger artists, sort of saying, look, if you ever want any advice, if you ever want to, you know. So he invited myself out and my wife and I went to dinner with him and a few friends. Um, and he was just chatting about stuff, really, and just being a nice dude, you know what I mean? And just kind of saying, look, if you ever want to talk, if you ever get, you know. And I also think because obviously he, especially in the latter, you know, years, I think he's also been very helpful to people who've been going through major problems, you know, with drugs and drink and all the rest of it and all mm-hmm. kinds of things, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's what his life is about really now, is about more giving back than it is taking, if you know what I mean. But anyway, that's another world to get into. Um, so... But on that dinner that night, he said, look, if you ever want me to come and play, you know, if you want to come and play on a record, just just get in touch, you know. And I'm like, 
and I'm listening to him say the words, but I'm not really computing it. <laughs> so anyway, sure enough, sure enough, he did. He came and played and he just rolled up. He just rocked up and just played piano on a couple of songs on, on that record that I did when I left Southgate Walkman. He's just always been great. He, I made a record a few years ago when I turned 50. I made a record in my garage at home. 50, Just yeah. to sort of, just to kind of say to myself what I could do. I didn't even have a record deal at the time. And he... We went to see him in Vegas, and I'm saying this because I want to. I want to. I'm proud of myself, but I also want to say how great he is in it. In that same sentence, mm-hmm. we went to see him just because we've seen him a bunch of times, and I wanted to see the show that he does in Vegas. He was doing the Red Dragon. He's just sat there, and he knows I'm in the audience, kind of thing. And he sat there, and he just says to the audience, he says, "By the way, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there's a young man in the audience tonight. Not when I was young, but there's a guy in the audience tonight." He said, "If you're going to buy a record, if you're going to buy a record in the next few weeks or next months, buy Rick Astley's record." By Rick Astley's record, it's called 50. It's an absolutely fantastic record. And I'm like, what is going on? You know, it's like wow. And he and he's always he's always done things like that. I mean, for loads of artists, I think. And you know, he's always he's still keen on working with other artists and doing duets and all the rest of it. And so I just think he's one of those people that I, I know some people around him. I'm really good friends with David Johnson, who's his, his MD and his guitar player for, for all the years that he's been going, really. So I've been to loads of his gigs and you know been around some of the stories and some backgrounds on on the um lion king some of those songs and stuff like because I, I was just there and he just someone says like get in there dude go on don't sing you know and stuff and i just think he's one of those people who's still in love with music he's still back in the days of cds and what have you he would go into stores i'm sure you've heard this story it's legendary yeah. he'd go in there and he'd come out with two great big bags of cds because mm-hmm. he still wanted to be like What's going on? I should know what's going on, and I want to hear that thing. You know what is what is it? So now he's the real deal. He he was one of the first people, the very first people to uh, when I when I won the BAFTA and the and the Oscar. He was one of the first people right. to cold call me and and congratulate me. And you know, amazing. He's yeah. he's like that. Wait, before we wrap up, I I always wanted to know: Are you shocked at the, the level of adoration that you're getting for like these uh cover songs that you do in in your show now and Speaking of uh, net worth, did you resist the temptation to do a Zeppelin song at net worth when you did it? Or <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't that kind of a net worth to be honest. I think it was just because it was big enough to get two oh, okay. and a half thousand cars in there with gardens, private gardens, or whatever you want to call them, whatever. Um, right. Uh, no, it's funny. I've never really got the lead out to be honest. I'm not. I've got friends who are so into Zeppelin. It's it's freaky. And obviously, John Bonham. That's another story, right? Because mm-hmm. like, just great. But I think. It's never really, I'm not saying I'm not a fan and I'm not, I don't appreciate Zeppelin, but it's, I'm, if I ever go, well, and I do love a lot of rock music, I, I still play drums in a midlife crisis punk rock covers band um, for phone and what have you. And we go from like um, uh, more ACDC, to be honest. And then, yeah, I saw the back and black one. Right. Okay. And more sort of punky rock sort of things. Um, I just, the thing is, it's how I start, it's how most people start. You start by covering other people's songs. Mm-hmm. And there's a real joy in doing it. There's a real... Um, well, you look like you're having the time of your life when you're doing it. Yeah, I do. I love it. And every time, for instance, we toured in the UK um, in uh, October no, into November. And we postponed that tour a couple of times. So I went into rehearsals. And they know what's coming, my band and crew and everything. They know I'm going to walk in on the last day. Uh, Because I don't like to give people much warning. 
and say, right, we're doing, uh, we're going to do watermelon sugar by Harry Styles. And everyone's like, uh, right, fine, what key, how are we And they got to learn else? it. <laughs> yeah, and they just got to play it. But the, the other reason I kind of like to do that is because if we can't all just shuffle into it and just play it and make it work, we right. shouldn't be doing it. Unless it just sort of happens instantly. So we, we've done loads of covers and I just, I love doing it. I still absolutely love it. And I think, to be honest, there's an element about doing other people's songs mm-hmm. that there's a, there's a tension relief because it's like, you're just doing a cover. Do you right. know what I mean? It's not, it's not like you're trying to represent for the audience something they've paid to come and watch. They've sort of gone, right, I bought that first album 30 odd years ago. I want him to do Never Gonna Give You Up. I want it to sound like the record. I wanted to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I feel I, I feel I owe them that, you know what I mean? And that's not in a negative. I, I want to give them that. Right. But I think when you do covers, you can just sort of say, it don't really matter. I don't mean that with any disrespect to the artist at all. I no, just it, mean, it's just having fun. You know, I think all artists like covering other people's songs. It's just I totally fun. get it. You know, it's just, I it's get just it. fun. Yeah. So my last question is, who explained to you what Rick Rowling was? Okay. Um, I have one of my closest friends, a guy called Andrew Frampton, and he is a, and and his brother, actually, Daniel, uh, has mixed and and, um, engineered last couple of albums for me and stuff. But uh, Andrew is a producer and a writer and lots of other things. Um, He, I was on holiday in Italy and he literally rip-rolled me in an email. So this is years ago, obviously. And I'm like, so I just emailed him back and went, okay, whatever, whatever, send and then, so he did it again. And I'm like, I te- replied an answer to him saying, what are you doing? You know what I mean? We've known each other years, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you actually doing? What, you know, cause I didn't grasp what it was at all. And right. it's also, this is the early days of YouTube. It's the mm-hmm. early days of someone getting an email with a video link in it. That, I mean, I know that's like, just so makes me like a granddad, but I mean, it was early that, that was quite a, a, a novel thing. Right. So in the end, we're on, we're on, we're on, our holiday in Italy, we're on the Amalfi Coast. I remember it where I was and everything, the hotel and everything. So I get on the phone to him like, Andrew, what the hell are you doing, right? What are you doing kind of thing? And he's laughing and he's like, so you don't know what a rip roll is? I'm like, what? No, well, I don't even know. What do you, what, I don't know the, the term, the language, the nothing. So he kind of explained it to me. And even then I still sort of thought, nah, this is just him joking. This mm-hmm. is just him doing this and a couple of other friends that he's going to get to email me and do whatever. And I had no idea that it was actually this little bubble on the internet that people right. were, you know. So, and to be honest, I give credit to my daughter for mostly putting me right about it. Um, I'd been nominated for an MTV award uh, in whenever it was, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Something to do with best live act or best act or best something, which all they were doing, they were jumping on the Rick Roll thing. And they were having a bit of fun. They were having a bit of fun, possibly at my expense, and and that's whatever. But it was going to be in Liverpool. And I knew that Sir Paul McCartney was going to be getting a Lifetime Achievement Award from Bono in Liverpool, right? Right. And I'm like, am I going to go to that? No, I am not, right? I wasn't even really going to go anyway, but I thought, I'm definitely not going there. If it would have been in Leipzig or Hamburg or Brussels, I might have gone to that, right? right? I ain't going to Liverpool with Sir Paul McCartney and Bono. That ain't happening, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, and my daughter said she said look there's no way you're going to that that's just like some and, and I said no you're right you know and she was like 15 16 whatever she was he said you do realize it's got nothing to do with you and I went what? and I was actually stu- I was stunned actually I'm like 
which means it's got nothing to it. It actually says Rick roll. I'm the Rick in the Rick roll. It's the video. I'm in the video. And said, yeah, but it's got nothing to do with you. And it was like really wise words freeing from, yeah. from a young a young woman, young girl, because she was absolutely right. It's it's got everything to do with me and nothing to do with me at the exact same time. And it's probably the best bit of advice that I ever had about it, all of it. And that is to say, it's over there and it's doing whatever it is, and it's a thing, and it's what have you, and it can be fun, and you can even enjoy the fun and and get involved in it sometimes, mm-hmm. but it isn't, it's a thing and it's a whatever, just it's there, whatever it is. And and that's because she was of the generation to understand the internet way more than I was. So, you know, even though I'd had it explained by one of my best friends who was my age, right. her explanation of it in a real way was kind of a lot more useful to me, if you know what I mean. What's your most famous Rickroll turndown that you've done? Like, I'm not doing that. Uh, well, I get, I get really commercial ones for money, basically, with, with products and things and all the rest of it. And I don't, I'll do ones that I think are okay and I think they're, they're fine and they're not, you know, in any way. And also because if they have a bit of a sense of humor about it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I've just done, I say just a few months ago, I did one for um, a video game for Guardians of the Galaxy. And I loved that movie. The first movie when it came out, I absolutely loved it. And the mm-hmm. way they use music, I think, is such a blessing mm-hmm. because kids know those songs, even the ones from the 70s, 80s, whatever. They know those songs. Yeah. Like we were talking at the very beginning, all three of us talking at the beginning about how we listen to music, how we come across it and stuff. So I thought that was a really cool thing to do. And the guys who made the video game are really great. So I'm, I'm more than happy to be invited to do that. But there's just times when I just look at it, and I go, no, I just don't feel that. It's just. And I also think it's a, it's a really difficult thing to navigate, I think, how mm-hmm. far to just do something for money. But don't right. get me wrong. Yeah. My wife and I, my wife manages me, and we have, we have a criteria of, of things that need answering. The first one that usually comes up is, where is it? Because if somebody says it's in Santiago in Chile, then we're almost on the plane, right? And mm-hmm. I don't love flying, but we're almost on the plane. Because we have great promoters down there. We've got some great wine down there. We love it down there. And if someone says to you, you know, somewhere like that or, you know, anywhere in South America, that's like a, what, you know, Japan I've been to quite a few times, one way or another, different places. There's lots of places in the world. Coming back to America and getting to go to towns and cities in such a way like this with the guys and everything, it's been such a treat, really. Not something I can do on my own in any way, shape or form. So, you know, but, but the truth of it is, it's like, where is it? It's also kind of, yes, there's money involved usually, as of course there is. Mm-hmm. But what we also look at is we sometimes say, well, you know what, we'll do that because that basically means we can do this. Well, we're not going to make any money, but I just really want to do it. Mm-hmm. By the time we've flown the band and the crew there, it's probably going to cost me money, but <laughs> right, I really right. want to do it. I really want to do it, and that pays for it. And I'm not afraid or embarrassed to talk about that because at the end of the day, music is a business and it has to kind of balance out at some point and you pick and choose and you do the ones, you know. So so I think I've just always used my head in terms of thinking about the, the Rickroll thing and I'm never going to give you up and saying, look, you, you, I don't want to bleed it dry because I don't. But sometimes there's opportunities that come along and sometimes they just happen. Sometimes they just happen in front of me and it's like, I'm getting on the stage and I'm singing that song right now because it's it's just been it's just happened. It's tricky, and like you said, there's a lot of artists who want to run a million miles from their biggest, oldest song, mm-hmm. and I'm 
I kind of go the other way. I sort of embrace it. And it's, it's, it's like an old jacket and it's kept me warm for 30 odd years. Do you know what I mean? So I just, I have that kind of like um, comfortable love for it, I think. Well, that that's inspirational because I'm a human being that is still slowly, you know, highly uncomfortable when nice gestures happen or people show you love or that sort mm. of thing. Like mm. I would have probably been the opposite and run away from it. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm it's, it's really uh, inspiring to see someone in a healthy way, just embrace in, embrace their their work and and really enjoy it and not be serious but not take themselves that seriously because you know i i've run across many an artist that does nothing but try to sabotage a good thing and i understand it i do understand it don't get me wrong i do and like i say that me having that 15 years or more not doing it is what i think allows me to be comfortable about it now because i'm not a kid anymore and i'm not wrapped up in it and don't get me wrong I want to represent it when I sing it live, you know, when I'm out with new kids doing this or whether I'm doing my own shows, wherever it is, I want to go out and sing that song the best I possibly can. And I want anybody who remembers it and has some love for it to have that emotion with me and, and vice versa and, and share it a bit and say, yeah, I was there. I bought the T-shirt. I remember, you right. know, because that because I, I go to whether it's Sir Paul McCartney in, in, in Fort Worth the other week or whether it's somebody who's nowhere near his level of, of, you know, greatness or whatever, whether it's somebody just starting out or what have you, if I've got a connection with them because I, you know, love that record, then I want to feel that in the room. And if I feel they're up and doing it, just painting my numbers up there, going, looking at the watch, going, oh, I'll be off the stage in 10 minutes. I'm like, I'd, I'd rather walk out. I don't want to know. Do you know what I mean? It's, we still got to respect it, I think, whatever, however old the song is. And even if it's become an internet meme, Mm-hmm. You, you still have to respect what the, the true emotion of it when the mm-hmm. when somebody heard it the first time. I appreciate you for you know taking the time out with us and 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 sharing your journey and your story and you know whether whether on the radio or Ted Lasso or the internet you know the <laughs> yeah. song's yeah. going to be here forever, man. It will be here forever. And I, I I appreciate you for sharing this with us. And this is uh, Rick Astley on Quest Love Supreme on behalf of Fontigolo, Sugar Steve. Uh, unpaid bill and myself and Laia. Uh, thank you guys, and we'll see you on the next go round of Quest Love Supreme. All right, y'all. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.